Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry, and with that razor-sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. In a previous episode, Larry, we talked about publishing Intimate Conversations, the book about classical music. We didn't really get into the nitty-gritty as to how it actually happened and how you found the publisher, the hybrid publisher that you really enjoy working with. So you want to share a little bit of that story with us? Well, I do because um, actually um, what happened is when I couldn't find a trade publisher, there was a time period uh, between then and the time that I found the hybrid publisher. Mm -hmm. So what was I going to do with that period? Well, uh, Holly Sulo and I were out to dinner one night uh, and I um, about a project that we were working on together. Very, very brilliant uh, girl besides being a great uh, uh, a person who draws so well. She's also extremely smart about books. Uh, and um, so I said to her, well, uh, the, I'm having trouble getting a publisher for intimate conversations, so, and I don't think that I should publish it myself because then I might not be able to get a trade publisher having once published it. She said, no. She said, if you publish it yourself, you own the copyright, you can pass it on to them. They don't have to worry about a third party. Well, she told me things I didn't know that made me say to myself, well, I can I can publish the book privately and then still publish it through a trade publisher. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what happened because you can certainly call hybrid a trade publisher. So during that, so the book didn't exist at that time in the sense that it was not something you could pick up as a book. So I decided I would do that. And so this is the production process. Now I learned a lot, I called it an odyssey, a long, which is defined as a long trip, a period involving a lot of different and exciting activities, especially while searching for something. Well, I was searching for something, but on the way, it, it became difficult, torturous, joyful, nasty, uh, great experience, meeting a lot of people, a lot of angles, and I found out what it's like to publish a book, to produce a book, mm. a book that's already written. And that is was really something. The last thing I said on the definition, what was I searching for? Um, so what I was searching for uh, uh, started with the people I spoke to to get them to talk be deeply about themselves, and they did. And uh, I, I thought I really had something in my hand that could be valuable because not only did they talk to me about some surface things, but in my style— I asked them things that were really personal, and most of them answered me, and wonderful things came out of it. So that, um, uh, so I would call that what I did with the uh, artists, pre-production, and uh, there were, you know, great people. I've also mentioned Kathy, you know, so uh, they talk to you, but you have to have transcriptions of what they say. Exactly. And those transcriptions have to be accurate. And Kathy Janess, who was my legal assistant for many years, did most of the transcriptions. You did the interviews on tape, correct? I, yeah, I did it with a digital voice recorder. Right, right. You did it with, uh, which is the way to do it. And then she transcribed the, the tape. Yeah, the digital tapes. Yeah, she gave me the. She gave me, you know, like a transcript. Perfect. 
just well, you're a lawyer. That you used to that. <laughs> <laughs> and she worked for me for so many years. She's used to a lawyer, right? And she's uh, so then uh, toward the end of the book, uh, in in order to, I had avoided writing an article on Rand Blake, you know, the famous pianist. Now, why did I avoid it? Because Rand speaks in a, like no other person in in the universe. He has a way of talking that most people would have trouble understanding what he's talking about because he goes from place to place. and, uh, and A lot like his music. <laughs> yeah, a lot like his music, right. So that, uh, But I ran into, a, at Symphony Hall, I ran into a young woman who was uh, a Harvard graduate. Janice Sai was her name, T-S-A-I, uh, and uh, was brilliant and was doing some photography for Ben Zandi, you know, the famous conductor. Oh, sure, yeah. And we got to talking. And I told her uh, that I hadn't quite finished the book. This is so. What the ha- what happened with her is that she and I worked together. It was the most intensive twelve days of my life. She was at her home, and I was at mine. And most of the time, we were conversing by email. And there were literally hundreds of emails in that twelve-day period. And through her. I was able to, she copy edited the, the book, she did all sorts of things, and uh, uh, we produced the book and actually did the chapter on, uh, together, more or less, on Rand Blake so that it was understandable, and um, I think that um, that was one adventure. Well, there were several others, I think probably two keep going in this fashion by sort of giving you a monologue of all of them is not necessarily the Well, best. let me ask you a couple things because I'm familiar with the book. I read it, loved it, and we talked about it on several occasions, both on and off the air. So you had the interviews. You had them transcribed. What was your next step after the transcription, after you were able to examine it? Did you have to then create the, uh, the what we call in the radio world the wraparounds, you know, your part, write, writing in your part and interspersing it with the dialogue that you had. How did you construct the, the chapters? I just took it uh, person by person. I looked at the transcript that had been provided to me. Um, um, it's very important to me, uh, and people have remarked how they like it, that uh, how you start a chapter and how you end a chapter. I think the first paragraph or the first few lines or the last few lines are very important. I developed in my mind how I wanted to present that person, what I wanted to, how that person had impressed me, what I thought were the key points in that person's life, how I could bring home to the reader what that person, composer, instrumentalist, whatever, whose name they probably had heard, best, how, what was the best way to show them as a person. And um, through the words they had spoken and through my remarks, uh, either asking them the question or answering what they said to me or sometimes uh, in the third person by interspersing comments. Um, You know, I I, I would say this, that, you know, my style of writing is um, strange, maybe. I really don't know what what I'm going to say when I start. I mean, I write that first sentence. Stream of consciousness to a certain extent. 
Yeah, not exactly. Yeah, you, you could describe it. Well, as you you have a an idea, a direction, and then the words come, and then you do you, do you edit a lot, self edit, as you're going. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, my usual uh, approach is um, to write the article in one fell swoop, as it, as it were. Right. Do a first draft. In other do words. a first draft. Yeah. And. Uh, that is sort of a stream of consciousness. One of the things that I do, and I'm not a writer to your extent in terms of books, but I, I found uh, it really helps me to read aloud what I've written, to read it out loud, to speak it. And if it speaks to me and if it sounds right in my head, then I'm going to go with it. If not, I make the changes. Do you ever do that? Well, if I ever did that, Lois would say, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> he never stops talking about himself. I can hear her now. I mean, we all have our ways of doing that kind of thing. And t- tell me more about Holly, because Holly is the caricaturist who drew the beautiful pictures of each composer. I will. Uh, I just want to finish up by okay. saying um, w- what I do is uh, there is sort of a stream of consciousness. I never get writer's block. And usually having the idea in my head then it'll flow out of me. I mean, nothing would flow if I didn't have a notion of how I wanted to write it. But on the other hand, I don't have the words formed. Yeah, I don't think any writer is that prepared <laughs> to have everything. No, no, no. I start writing and yeah, the words just, come. Yeah. And, uh, um, and then you say, how does it reach final form? I take the first draft and I copy edit it. Mm-hmm. If this word is wrong, I change it. But mostly it's the same. Yeah. yeah and I put in the commas and I, I make sure the spelling is correct, the spacing. Do you, yeah. uh, by the way, agree with me that legal training, going to law school, is is not only helpful for law but helpful in terms of any kind of writing? Uh, yeah, I think it's helpful for writing and it's also helpful for uh, logical thinking. Yeah. And um, – I always think to myself, how can I solve this problem? What can I do to get from A to Z? Um, so that, um, you know, I tend to be fairly quick on the trigger, but I've learned practicing law that sometimes you just lay back and think a little about it. Uh, so now I want to circle back because I, I'm Holly. curious. I'm curious. Holly is the artist. I'm curious. Did you uh, – did you write the book first, have it all written manuscript-wise, and then apply Holly to to this task? How did she do the work that she did? Did she work from photographs? Did she work with these individuals? Or you know, she's an amazingly quick study. Uh, yeah, I think the the book was in existence, and I and I picked out parts uh, that I thought that she might be able to illustrate uh, successfully. Now, there was one, uh, for example, I did a piece on uh, Henry Louis Gates. You know, the guy that. Finding Your Roots. Exactly. And he became EBS. a very good friend. He's a wonderful guy. And uh, so I showed Holly a couple of pictures of Henry Louis Gates. She never met him. And uh, I said, uh, will those help you? And uh, she took those. And the background in each of those, uh, she drew the picture. It looks so much like him and it's so complimentary. And it's such a wonderful uh, picture of Henry Louis Gates. But in the background, it shows you how bright she is. Instead of the background that, w- that w- was in the picture or the pictures that I showed to her, she drew a bookcase with books in it and stuff. I mean, put him in his natural milieu. Right, right. And uh, then an- another amazing one, I can think of several. I- another amazing one was um, my mother. Okay. And my mother was gone by that time. She mm. was 96. But this memoir is going to have wrapped around it from front 
cover, uh, spine and back cover, I think the picture you've seen of my mother's family of 70 or 80 people at a wedding in Nantasket in 1935, and my father is in it, her brother is in it, her mother, my grandmother is in it. I'm four years old back in Brookline. Somebody is watching me. I, I wasn't there, for, you know, keeping me from uh, doing whatever kids do in their pants. <laughs> so so uh, I looked at – so I didn't know this existed, but when it was – when I saw it, I said, oh, my God, this is the perfect wraparound uh, for – this is the perfect cover yeah. from edge to edge uh, for this – Memoir. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. So you find something that, and and the, I love the fact that it's a wraparound. It yeah. goes from front to back. Oh, it does. It's got you know seventy or eighty, sixty, seventy, eighty people in it, and the family had only come in eighteen ninety five. This is nineteen thirty eight, and the the mm-hmm. Granberg family they're already a very successful family, mm-hmm. and uh, I you know I knew some of the people in the picture later. Of course, most of them in the picture are gone, but anyway, there's a picture of my mother there, and at that time she probably was. Born in 1905, that's 1938. So she was, she was 1905? 33. 33. And she's sitting there in a hat, and uh, her, my grandmother is next to her, and up in another row is Sel, my very handsome guy. I guess he's in the memoir, too, uh, is up there. And my father <laughs> on the, is in the, he'll, he'll be on the spine of the book. So I give it to Holly, and I say, well, that's what my mother looks like. And... Um, so the story of that I was referring to was when my mother was standing on the porch of the apartment building during the 1938 hurricane, and I was outside, seven years old, and I'm yelling up, hey, look at the trees falling. Wow, this is really fun. The wind. And she was beside herself. Of course. Get up here. Get up here. So that was, so Holly drew my mother. And I looked at it and I said, holy God, that looks like my mother. Captured her, not only drew her visage, but in that particular point and place and time. Yeah, she put behind she put behind my mother the storm, the hurricane. Amazing. And um, that was a great picture. And uh, so I, you know, I said to Holly, I said, I'm going to use that uh, for, the, for my mother instead of a photograph. I mean, my mother was considered a great beauty, okay? 1905, she was dancing on the roof of the what, the, the Ritz. plaza or whatever. You know, the one that became the Ritz. Um, and uh, they had a roof garden. Yeah, the old Ritz. It's when she was 17 or 18. My goodness. And it's funny, in those pictures, and I know the picture very well because I've, I've seen it, everyone looks like uh, it's frozen in time, 1938. But they, the, if you were 33 years old... You carried yourself like a sixty-year-old, just be, right because of the formal dress, and people looked more mature than they really were in those days. Probably, uh, my father always wore a. T- you know, he was he became very successful early on in the in the retail shoe business, yeah. and uh, of course, in nineteen at that time at seven, to me, I can remember the hurricane, of course, because it was ferocious. But I didn't think of it as deadly. Well, th- those were the years before they started naming them in the 50s, right? 1938 hurricane. Oh, nearly 1,000 people were killed in throughout New England. And, yeah, and Rhode and Island especially. There was no indication. They, we didn't have satellite. We didn't have weather 
prognostication like we do today. No, so no, no. just came and bang. And yeah. um, my father, who is slightly older than you, but in the same general age range, said same thing. He was outside having a great time, and his mother was calling him in. Come on, come in, come in. What's the matter with you? It's crazy, crazy time. Well, I don't think I think you're right about prognostication. I think the storm came to land sort of surprisingly. Yeah, it didn't uh, provide warning to science in those days, but you survived, Larry. So here's another one. Um, when uh, Lois and I were in uh, Spain, and she found a necklace in a joyeria, a jewelry store. I've talked about that. Yeah. That she wanted. Uh, it, it was a beautiful necklace, and um, so I, we didn't buy it at that time. She was pretty upset with me for not buying it, so I had to go jump through hoops to get a hold of the the guy in one of the hotels that was the uh, people, the guy who took care of the customers. What do you call them? And uh, you know, you go to a desk and he tells you concierge. Yeah, we I had trouble with the word the last time. Concierge. <laughs> and uh, so that, um, but but we got her the necklace, and uh, so anyway. In, in uh, telling that story, I forget how it happened because uh, did, uh, did Holly actually see the necklace or was she just going from Lois's description of it? I'm not quite sure. But amazingly, she, she drew the necklace. It's a beautiful picture of the necklace yeah. lying in the box, you know, appropriately with curves to give it, you know, personality. And, and uh, so... That was another one she did. Well, before we wrap up this episode, it, it's a, very important to remark on the fact that you surround yourself with creative people who know what they're doing. That's a big step in the right direction, right? I mean, if you had anybody but Holly, you might still be working on the caricatures and the pictures. I'll tell you something about Holly to close this off. Now, Holly is a, a super intelligent person. She also is like an artist. She, it, it, it's tough to pin her down. Sometimes it's tough to to contact her, and uh, so um, even now I'm trying to contact her and I'm having trouble contacting her. But um, you know, we we're great friends because um, you know we've never had a uh, a pause in conversations, and we've you know spent time together. I told you about a, being with her at dinner and other times we've met. And it's always easy to talk to her, but um, she is she is like an artist, like a temperamental or not temperamental. Maybe that's the wrong word. An artist who's has her own mind about the way she wants to live her life, but and that's okay. Um, in order to now, I, f I found her work and I got in touch with her, and she met over at the Harvard Bookstore where she was working, and we got along great. And then all of a sudden, silence for seven or eight months. I wrote to her, wrote to her. And then, out of no place, she comes back into my life. And at that point, did all of these caricatures. And uh, then, um, so that is like an artist would ask. Uh, it sounds very familiar, especially visual art. Uh, oftentimes, these wonderful folks need to have their privacy and their time alone to do what they're doing. And sometimes they, they lose track of time. I'm not saying in her case, but... It's amazing. Well, whatever it is, uh, yeah. let me put it this way, that I recognized her ability and I was persistent in getting, tr trying to get her to recontact me, finally was successful. And I would say this, that uh, I was so persistent and such a pain in the rear end 
that she finally got in touch with me. You know? And here, herein lies the success story of Larry Rutman. You've always been a pain in the rear end. That's yeah. what makes, that's what propels you forward. But we love you anyway. Well, I would say that uh, my <laughs> byword is to succeed. Be a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, we'll jo- <laughs> we'll we'll join you next time. What a way to what a way to wrap up a podcast. I thought it would be. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.